This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we take stock of the first guiding human rights principles for education, known as the Abdijan Principles. Adopted in 2019, these principles provide guidelines for state obligations to provide quality public education and the role of the private sector in education. The Abidjan Principles consolidate the relevant law on the right to education across all of the different human rights treaties and texts. And in addition to the state obligations, they also focus on the role of private actors in education. Um, So they they provide a comprehensive and new look at uh, what is already existing uh, law and uh, material from our previous agreements globally. My guest is Frank Adamson, assistant professor at California State University, Sacramento. He's recently co-edited the open access book, Realizing the Abdijan Principles on the Right to Education, Human Rights, Public Education, and the Role of Private Actors in Education. Frank Adamson, welcome back to Fresh Ed. You were actually the first guest ever on Fresh Ed about six years ago. So welcome back to the show. Thanks. Well, it's it's great to be back and happy to have a new offering for the show. And it uh, seems like we're still talking about the same topic on privatization, but we've, we've made a lot of progress. So uh, happy to share. <laughs> Indeed, we have made a lot of progress. I mean, it definitely is still about privatization. But today we're actually talking a little bit about these Abdijan principles, which help states in a sense work their way through some of these messy issues of privatization. So why don't you tell me what the Abdijan principles are and what your role was in their crafting? Sure. Uh, So the Abdijan principles consolidate the relevant law on the right to education across all of the different human rights treaties and texts. And in addition to the state obligations, they also focus on the role of private actors in education. Um, so they, they provide a comprehensive and new look at uh, what is already existing uh, law and uh, material from our previous agreements globally. My involvement in the Abidjan Principles was not as a writer or expert of the producing the text, which was done by a, a committee of lawyers, but I did sit on the adoption committee in Abidjan, Uh, I'm a signer, an original signer on the Abidjan Principles, and I'm an education researcher who is focused on the education side of um, the application of the right to education and the role of private actors in education. So that's sort of my role and what I bring to editing this volume. Right. So you've you've sort of seen these principles from their very creation all the way now into their application, at least in the beginning stages. Absolutely. And I, and I was actually part of some of the con- consultations that happened prior to the adoption uh, committee in Abidjan. Right. So I guess, you know, for me as someone in education, I didn't really know too much about these ideas of guiding principles in international law. So, you know, is are these common in other sort of fields or sectors outside of education in, in international law? Do they have guiding principles? Well, that, that makes two of us, Will, because I was unfamiliar as well. But yes, there are guiding principles. And I think that's something really important to understand that uh, their guiding principles are common. They're in other areas uh, such as uh, poverty reduction, 
and it's really international law is, as we might imagine, complex and, and varied. And so you do need this sort of drilling down into a particular topic that compiles all of these different um, laws that are relevant so that we can better understand and use them in, in, in practical uh, circumstances. And so what has not been done is that it hasn't been done for education yet. And so that's where the Abidjan principles are a new contribution but based, again, on existing law. Right. And the other thing that I found interesting reading your volume is that in other sectors where guiding principles have been written for international law, it does come often from civil society members. It doesn't have to just come from, you know, the inner, like the UN or... There are two sources. Yeah, there are two main avenues, if you will. Uh, one of them is an official institutional organization requests the production of a guiding principles document or civil society can produce a guiding principles document and and the legitimacy will be determined by its use and also by the process that was taken. And, and one of the first chapters in the book discusses how how really how well the Abidjan principles process was conducted in terms of inclusion uh, across the globe of different actors of different constituencies. So in that way, the Abidjan principles do have a very strong foundation. Right. So through this participatory sort of approach and consultative approach over years and working with lawyers, how many principles are we even talking about here? Like, is this something that's like, is this like, you know, 10 principles that, that we can easily sort of, you know, count off? Oh, just a few. Well, and this is part of the adoption process was that we did, you know, end up with 97 total principles. And then it was, okay, well, that's a lot to digest. <laughs> so there was this idea and, and, and eventually they were, they were grouped into 10 overarching principles. But really the Abidjan principles from a legal perspective are meant to be taken as a whole. But there are, if you open the Abidjan principles as a document, it's downloadable obviously, then you can see that there is a structure in which each um, each group or topic fo of a couple of principles focuses on one area, such as education finance or the role of multinational organizations, these types of things. So you can actually sort of get into the document at any particular place that is of interest to you through the 10 overarching principles. And when you say you, who, like, who are these principles for? Well, they're for everyone. Uh, they're for governments who are looking to ensure that they are meeting their state obligation. They're for international organizations who are interested in promoting the human rights education uh, and delivering on the sustainable development goal for, and it's particularly equity, which is a big topic in the Abidjan principles. And they're also for civil society and everyday people to m let everyone know because we didn't have guiding principles before in education, that we do have a right to education. And actually, that chapter, uh, there is a chapter in the book that addresses exactly this, that there actually is a, a right to education uh, in international law. And that was not previously fully established. So that is a, a, a major contribution of one of the chapters. So can you say a bit more about what you mean by this right to education and how in international law it, it there's actually precedent for a right to education? What does that what does that actually mean? I mean, it's really easy to say in a way, and many people just sort of say, I have a right to education, the human right to education, but give me a bit more there. I, I feel like what does that actually mean in practice or for a state or how might the Abdijan principles, you know, guide us into 
realizing that right to education? Right. So I think the um, the first thing I want to say is that the entire process of editing this volume was very interesting because I'm not a lawyer. I'm an education researcher. And this volume actually marries the the legal uh, context, jurisprudence analysis with the empirical education evidence and provides that unique lens. So from a right to education uh, perspective, which gets very detailed in terms of the international treaties that are drawn upon, uh, we can say that there is an obligation on states to provide public education. So, and the right comes with the individual to say that, you know, the state is not fulfilling its obligation um, to the individual. So that's, that's what, you know, from a legal perspective, that, that's the, the right exists to say, you, you know, you have an obligation as a state and I um, am going to make a demand, right? And then in the Abidjan principles is the idea of remedies also, that you cannot delay on the remedies, that there needs to be a, a maximum effort uh, in, a, in a sort of an immediate way to remedy any uh, any violations of that right uh, to education. And this, you know, in uh, Jacqueline Mowbray's chapter, she talks about that bothly from a, a theoretical legal analysis and also from the practical application of legal principles in a contemporary education environment. So the right to education is something that a child has and the state has to has an obligation to provide it and there must be remedies if the state is not providing it what about parents how do parents fit into this equation since a child might have a right to education but often it's a parent who decides on the type of education that child will receive yeah i mean so parents they do have a right to choose with some parameters, the type of education that their child receives. So, it, you know, the, that means that if they want a certain type of religious education, they do have a right to to that. But they can't, um, the, the, that education still needs to meet a minimum standard in terms of the, the um, overall provision uh, of, of education by the state. And the state still needs to provide high quality education uh, public education in addition. So you can't just have a choice between high quality private education and low quality public education. That's not really a choice, right? So, but it, just to your point about the parents, the parents do actually have some some role of choice under international law. It's not like the state is completely subsuming uh, parental um, discretion. At the same time, though, when it comes to the hierarchy uh, of whose whose right supersedes in a in a disputed case, then the state would does have the obligation of providing it uh, a high quality public education to the child, right? Because that is the actual beneficiary, and you have to protect the right of that child to to education. So there's some interesting points that I can under I would imagine are rather difficult to begin defining in international law, such as earlier you said minimum standards that the the you know these institutions must meet a certain minimum standard or a certain quality education. How on earth do 
we begin to understand what, say, quality education is of a minimum standard, how do we even begin to understand that in international law? So, I mean, that's where the evidence on uh, education comes in, right? Uh, you know, that that is a, a contested space. What, what do we mean by that? I, I think international law has some very broad um, definitions. So uh, under international law, the right to education is uh, based on a premise that a, a well-educated, enlightened, and active mind able to wander freely and widely is one of the joys and rewards of human existence. And in the uh, Declaration of Human Rights, I believe it says it's the full realization of human potential. So we have these very broad notions of what we mean by, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, what an education or right to education needs to be. And so when I say a minimum threshold, I'm already using education speak to get to that sort of human rights notion of what that is. And I, and I would argue that that even the term minimum threshold is probably not enough to actually get there. So this is this is very much the crux of the issue in, in education. What does it mean to actually reach that that human rights level of of this this idea of the, the, the enjoyment of the full potential of, of uh, the human of a human life? So in that way, do we get to that by measuring test scores? No, that's a very poor and inadequate proxy. So part of the job of incorporating the Abidjan principles into uh, an international education framework is to really rethink how and what we're measuring to be more in accordance with this broader vision of what um, enjoyment of a right to education actually means under international law. So are you saying, in a sense, that some of these international examinations or even national examinations that are used to sort of, you know, measure quality in a particular system. Are you saying that they might not actually live up to the Abdijan principles? I'm saying that I, they may not. Um, yes, I'm saying that they may not. And that is an analysis. That's not a point that I can go through and say, you know, in X point, I mean, PISA, for instance, just to take the most common international one, does do more than, first of all, it's framed as, as literacy in different content areas, not just a rote memorization or repetition of math or science. Uh, so it does have this concept of a higher level, higher order thinking skills are embedded in the, the way it's constructed. It also measures other issues, uh, even past uh, the socioeconomic status of the student in a variety of different domains. So it's it's not that there's not a there there in terms of what is important, but um, there are there, and part of the analysis is to figure out like, okay, are there other features of this international right to education that are missing? And that's work that we're doing with the Global Education Monitoring Report. Um, but I think more broadly, many states aren't even really living up to what, a, what and this gets back to the minimum threshold would be on, even these international assessments, you have a wide swath of students and usually uh, the marginalized students are very well known. They're low SES, they're students of color in many countries. Um, those students are not at the higher proficiency levels. So inequality, inequity is baked in to the systems currently. And so that's like issue number one. And then there is also issue number two of are we actually realizing the full human potential? No, we're very, very far away from that right now. 
extremely far away from that. And many, many states are not even close to that uh, in, in any sense of that word, right? Because we have, you know, large out-of-school populations in many countries. So, you know, you can't say that you're realizing the full human potential through education when you don't even have 10% or 15% of your kids in school. I mean, that's a massive problem. And, and, and the point here about the right to education is the state is obligated through its treaty signatures to actually provide that education. And, and that's really the crux of the issue. It, it, they have, the state has already made a legal commitment and entered the obligation to do that. So there's a lot of questions that come up that I have. I guess I'll start with that last point you made about when a state has the obligation to provide that education that is supposedly of high quality. How is the state supposed to pay? I would imagine in some low and middle income countries, um, it can be rather difficult to for the state to provide and pay for public education without relying on fees of some sort. I mean, <laughs> you, you are opening a Pandora's box here in terms of education finance, global education finance, right? Because, you know, you, you get into um, the relationship economically uh, between the global north and the global south. You get into the colonial history of extraction. You get into the relationship between the, um, the banks, the um, development banks and what they prioritize in terms of investment structures. Um, so I think that that's at the international level that we can see that, and this is why it's important that also international organizations understand when and how they are actually um, supporting states to uh, realize the, the right to education or when they're actually acting in ways that are contrary to that. So that's at the international level. Do the Abidjan principles provide guidance to, say, the international organizations like the World Bank to help them? Can you say a bit more about that? Absolutely. That's one of the sections that I that I mentioned. I mean, it, it's really just, you know, it's saying that you, so in particular, uh, organizations, different organizations, say, like the World Bank or any international organization, they prioritize different approaches to education, right? And that's then we get into the private actor part of the Abidjan principles, right? So are private actors um, supplementing the state or are they supplanting the state in how they provide education, right? And, and a lot of times what happens is that the private actors are supplanting the state and they're not um, providing the same quality of education and they are creating inequities. And I think this gets to one of the very important education empirical chapters in the book by Tony Verger and um, uh, co-authors on um, comparing all of the different types of public-private partnerships in education by type and subtype. Uh, so you have like universal vouchers and targeted vouchers, uh, which basically means the state is paying a family to go to a private school and they're paying everybody universal or they're paying some people that mostly usually the, the poor folks would be targeted vouchers. So in what they find is that targeted vouchers actually can help achievement in some cases, but that all of the the public uh, private partnership uh, approaches have equity concerns, right? So this gets back to if you're an international organization and you're supporting this type of public private partnership or PPP approach, then you very well empirically 
are uh, supporting inequity. And in, in that case, then it's a possible human rights violation to those folks who are on the um, inequitable side of the equity equation, right? They're being shut out of educational opportunity. Right. Okay. So the equity here is if you are not able to access some of these private options. Right. If you're not able to access private options, but more on the state side, if the state abdicates its responsibility and says, oh, well, we have schools here, they're just private schools. That's not good enough. The state has to provide, uh, it's obligated to provide high quality public education, right? And so you can't then go ahead and charge for it, which gets back to your original point on the finance. And I did only talk about the international side of the finance. And there's also the domestic side, right? So, you know, within every country, how much are you allocating actually towards education? Um, what is the tax justice going on in your in your system, right? So education is a huge line item within any national budget. And so, you know, the, the tax justice movement and on the domestic side is, is also very important uh, in terms of making sure that companies are, are paying their fair share wherever they're working. Uh, you know, there it's a whole inter, interlocked global economic system that's functioning to say whether or not an individual is able to access their, their right to education. And, and that's what we see play out all the time. Do the Abdijan principles provide states guidance on tax? Uh, not, I don't think on tax in particular. Now, I also have to say they're 97 principles, so I would need to, you know, there are other people who have them fully memorized. It's not me, but I, I don't think it's on tax in general, but it's just on that. They're more principles, right? So how would you approach this? So you do need to actually make sure that you are providing the right amount of money that required to deliver on this, the right to education, the obligation for the right to education. But and that's why I mentioned that, you know, it could come down in one country to they're doing a lot of debt servicing. So that's where the international organizations need to take a look and say, are we, you know, what's happening here? Are we actually creating more of a problem? And and that has been historically that has absolutely happened. Uh, whereas other countries may have a situation where they have uh, companies that are not paying their, their local taxes. So it, it varies. I mean, there's hundreds of countries, right? So it varies by by context. And you, you know, so but the principles do say that you need to be allocating to do this like that. That is the commitment. So what about religious schools? Because that that seems like an interesting, I don't know, subsection of private schooling in some states. How would the Abdijan principles sort of deal with religious schooling and per parents choosing to send their child to a religious school? So, I mean, it's a complicated question. It's, it's complicated also because it, it functions so differently in different states. So I'll, I'll try to give some context here. But the principles would say, obviously, that the parent has a right to choose a a religious school. And fundamentally, the state cannot depend on that provision as the only choice, right? A child has no other choice but that they have to have a public choice of a high quality school, not just a low quality school, but a, but a high quality school. Uh, but then some countries actually have religious embedded in their public system, right? The Netherlands has a historical system that where there are religious schools that are considered public and, and sort of treated as such, except that they're not managed by a public entity, right? I mean, they're managed by a church. Uh, so it, it gets to this, this very murky line. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, in the Abidjan principles, we identify different kinds of actors that are private actors. Uh, and then when you get to the specific topic of privatization, you can think about that across uh, different 
levels of influence within uh, a public education system, right? For instance, funding could be private or the management of schools could be private or the ownership of property could be private. So there's all these different ways in which the privatization of education can occur. But the, the Abidjan principles don't go into that as much as they talk about the types of private actors that are involved. In terms of the religious concept, I think the most important thing to know is that there is a freedom for the parents to go to a religious school, but it can't impinge on everybody else's freedom to have a high quality public option and public provision, right? And I'd say, you know, in many ways, we're going back and forth on all these subtopics, but that is really the overarching topic, right? And it just, I keep uh, repeating it because not only is that like the synthesized version of it, but as I said before, we are so far from actually doing it. Right. In so many places. Yeah. Religious schooling is, you know, like you said, very murky when it comes to these public and private actors and how it operates within different contexts. Another potentially murky area that I could I, I would imagine exists would be private tutoring. You know, every system that I have seen has some form of private tutoring. And often you see children in public schools, but then spending huge amounts of money on these private tutors to sort of supplement and perhaps at times supplant the public schooling system. So would the Abdijan principles be helpful in trying to understand private tutoring and all of the diversity of actors? who, you know, from a college student doing tutoring on the side to big companies that are tutoring millions of children. I mean, would the Abdijan principles, in a sense, help us think through how we should treat these different private tutoring actors? Yes, I think that it would in the sense of, in a broad level, are students who have the, uh, and families who have the money to access these private options, gaining an unfair advantage over everyone else. And in a sense of gaining a higher quality education that the state really should be providing. So at a fundamental level, if that's true, then the states are not providing the highest quality education they could, and they need to remedy that situation. In practice, there's also this, I mean, and I know that this is like the issue of shadow schooling, particularly in Asia, there's on the, on the demand side, there's a huge problem where we have an education arms race, you know, when you have billions of students or that need, uh, not billions, but hundreds of millions of students who need, who or want uh, advantages in life and families who are willing to pay for it. And, and so in that way, you know, at a fundamental level, our system actually uh, breeds that type of inequality. It, 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 the competitive market, it, it breeds that. And so I think in a, in a very large scale global dynamic analysis, you would have to say, okay, if that is how we're doing it, the role of the Abidjan principle is to highlight the state obligation, not to enhance that inequality or inequity, but to actually try to mitigate it. Right. And so in that way, one way, you know, this goes back to the issue of Finland, right? In Finland, as we spoke about from my previous book, there are not a lot of private schools. Because when something's high quality and public, meaning free for the individual, you pay through it for your tax dollars for sure. But people are not choosing en masse to go to to pay for something additional because they are getting a high, so a high quality public option. And so that is actually um, available. 
the last sort of murky area that I could think of actually relates to the pandemic. Um, because during the pandemic, one of the things that we've seen is this, you know, massive increase of ed tech companies trying to sort of use this crisis as an opportunity to provide various online platforms to do education and sort of do all sorts of things that I don't even know about, probably. Um, and I think teachers are being, you know, targeted and emailed and and school principals are and definitely superintendents and, you know, ministries of education are probably cutting deals with Google. Is it possible for the Abdijan principals to sort of help us begin to think through our current moment and the rise of ed tech? Uh, absolutely. There's a practicality here that we're in a pandemic and we're in an emergency situation. And, you know, uh, you, that there might need to be uh, different solutions applied. But the issue is, if there is a, a private actor involvement, that, that that would be temporary, that the trend is not towards consolidating private actor involvement, but it is using something in particular for an emergency situation and then f having the state fulfill the obligation. And, the, and in the law, they call that the progressive realization, right? So maybe the right isn't realized at the moment fully, but there needs to be progressive realization. There needs to be the maximum devotion, the maximum amount of uh, available resources to fulfilling the obligation and also a avoiding a retrogression, right? So what used to be public doesn't then become outsourced to private and then the public doesn't have an option of a public uh, availability. And then it's just all of a sudden you get to, you have to pay the tech fees or you have to give your information or data to a, a tech company. Because really when, when we're talking about tech, we're talking about big data, we're talking about them monetizing in a variety of different commercial ways, their information that's collected on students without any compensation or maybe even knowledge of students of what's being happened and no no sort of agreement on that. So yeah, we're in a pandemic. It's an emergency, right? We we had to do what we had to do. And and honestly, thank goodness that there is a technology there. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that it's carte blanche to replace our public system, right? And to the extent that the tech that the that the states want to use tech, they they need to be doing it within this supplementing context of we're providing um the we're the the main primary guarantors of the right to education. And I will say one other point on this pandemic, you know, a lot of the private schools that opened, uh, low-fee private schools in the global south, many of them actually ended up closing during the pandemic and leaving students adrift, right? Because they're businesses, they're functioning like businesses. They open, they close, like the restaurant down the street that closed because it couldn't staff, right? They don't have the public backing for the to be the guarantor of education, even in the emergency. So that's where you get to this really problematic uh, leaving of students out in the cold in the middle of the pandemic where they have no access to educational opportunity. And that is that is really one of the fundamental dangers of the competitive model is, you know, it creates winners and losers both at the student level and at the institution level. And when the institution loses, those students are also uh, inherently losing. It seems like the Abdijan principles are going to be even more important in the sort of potentially the idea of the post-pandemic world, trying to ensure that that public schooling has not disappeared and been overtaken by some sort of private actor, or potentially all of these students that have been left out of private schools that have closed have a place to go. So it just seems like they're going to be needed going forward to help different constituencies sort of figure it out. I, one of the things I've been wondering is how many organizations or even nation states have adopted these principles, if that 
that's even what one does with principles. Um, you know, are, are, are these principles, in a sense, being taken up by the institutions and organizations and states that we've been talking about? Well, the good news on that front is that they've already agreed. Their Abidjan principles are based on already signed human rights law. So everybody's already agreed to this, right? And that, that, that's one of the things I keep returning to is we're not, there's nothing new here. It's a new package that's very particularly tailored, but this is already extant uh, human rights law. So it's just uh, us calling to account the the countries to say, hey, we you know we came out of World War II, we established the UN, we we established the UN Declaration of Human Rights, we established these treaties over the last seventy five years. So you know now it's time to make sure that they're delivered upon, and and so there's there's that level of it. Uh, but but then it's you're, you're you know uh, there is also the point of okay who's actually engaging with this so I will give the example of the High Court in Uganda referencing the Abidjan principles in particular in one of the decisions it made right so saying that you know this document is valid it contains you know uh, legal material that's relevant to this case and you know I and I don't know the ins and outs on the legal level of what gets applied in terms of case law at the individual country level but it is an example of that being used now in chapter 10 of the book the final chapter we go through we have a table of all of the different groups that are using the Abidjan principles it's quite extensive across the globe in different contexts so that's all underway and we even lay out the roadmap for you know how it should be uh deployed you know essentially it's idea of people many folks need to even still recognize and understand that there is a right to education right that the Abidjan principles do collect this existing right and bring it together and, and so there can no be no longer like oh we don't know maybe this treaty says that maybe this treaty doesn't that's not an available excuse anymore right because it's compiled it's there so now it's like okay we realize that we expand awareness and then we need to build capacity on how do we think about human rights as we reconfigure or evolve our education system to better deliver on that that obligation and that goes from technical assistance at the at the local level the country level all the way through the international level when we're we're doing international reports and their researchers have a role to play there and then there is a legal component of where you know uh any jurisdiction could say that we are actually now uh following the abidjan principles in all of our decision making right and i think that would be a really powerful step i'm not i don't know of a jurisdiction that's actually made that statement but that would be one way to say you know anywhere from a country to a local school school board could say, okay, we're doing the Abidjan principle. So every decision we make needs to make sure that we are not essentially committing a human rights violation. I mean, because when you get right down to it, uh, that's a very heavy allegation. So in any particular case, I wouldn't just say, oh, they're committing a human rights violation. I would want to know the details. But, you know, the point is that you don't want to be committing the human rights violation and you want to be honestly delivering on what we've committed to as a human right. This is, you know, and, and I think that's where the, the issue is that it does cost money and there may not be profit for certain actors in doing that. But the, and that, that's really the, the one of the major issues is that uh, we have to value fundamentally the educational opportunity of the children involved rather than any of the sort of profit schemes or skimming off the top that so often happens when you involve uh, private actors in a in a sort of supplanting of the public education endeavor and in the, around the globe. Well, Frank Adamson, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Please don't be a stranger. Come back on before the next six years passes by. I would love to, Will. Thanks so much for having me. 
Frank Adamson is assistant professor at California State University, Sacramento. His latest co-edited book is entitled Realizing the Abdijan Principles on the Right to Education. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Octus, Ing Jung Cho, Obafemi Ungunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afro-Boteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shakta Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brent, and I'll be back next week.